Welcome to Creative Innovators with Gigi Johnson, and I am excited to bring to you great people from all over the world who are making changes, breaking things, and remaking them around various creative industries. So bring us your great innovators, and we'll bring them to you here in the Creative Innovators Podcast. Zach Zalin has been making and breaking companies in music and technology for years. He shares with us in this interview how he got started in music and ended up at the Troubadour as general manager in his early 20s, and how he keeps looking at new ways to look at complex data environments while making great decisions and connected technologies for not just music, but other creative sectors. He'll share how he got back into this space, but also what he learned from working for Richard Branson and what he's learned both uh, investing in creative industries and technology, but how he's come full circle in his decisions with his current work in Super Hi-Fi and bringing artificial intelligence into distribution and user experience area for music. you to get us started with getting the world into the guy who's going to end up at the Troubadour. Oh, wow. You're going back a long I'm time. I'm going back. Yeah. Uh, well, when I moved to Los Angeles, I came out here with the hopes of being a performer. That's where it all started. I came out to go to music school. Oh, cool. And I think like many musicians at the time and now, I had to make a living doing something other than the thing I really wanted to make a living doing, which was playing music. So I'm going to stop you there. So playing what? Guitar. Guitar. And you moved from where on the East Coast? I moved from New Jersey. That's right. Yay, New Jersey. So were you playing in high school? Were you in a band? Were you creating on the side? Were you playing out as a kid? I played played a lot when I was a kid. Uh, I played a number of instruments. But yeah, I played in bands. I played... As much as I could, I jammed with everybody that I could. That's really just what I wanted to do. I loved playing the guitar. And so as soon as I was old enough to leave the house legally, you know, I ran (laughs) as far as I could from New Jersey. I found a great music school out in Los Angeles that was more performing oriented than than just pure music theory. And and I I loved it. It was it was great. And that's what I wanted to do. But well, I'm going to stop you before you get further there. Did your parents have a musical background? Yeah, my my parents, my whole family is in the performing arts of some sort. My sister was a an actress. My aunt was an actress. My father was an off-Broadway producer in his younger career and then as an attorney primarily did music-oriented stuff. So he was a lawyer for a lot of bands in the 1980s as an example like Van Halen and Rush and U2 and lots of others. My mom was a professional dancer until she tore her hamstrings and then produced off-off-Broadway shows. So my parents were very musically oriented, and I just obviously followed in my family's footsteps, at least initially. And they were thrilled about that? They were advising how you excel as a, as a creator? Were they going, oh, don't take our lifestyle? No, I think my parents were, were fairly supportive of pretty much whatever it was that I was going to choose to do. Yeah. So you found this great school out on the West Coast. Where did you go to? Yeah, so it's a school called Musicians Institute, which today 
is a four-year university with all the credentials that are required for students to who want to go to college there. Back then, it was a one-year, more vocational program, but it was staffed by some of the best and most seasoned musicians in and around Los Angeles. So it was guys like Frank Gambale and and lots of others who would like, you know, dedicate their lives to playing, and they wanted to dedicate a good portion of time to teaching people who really wanted to learn more of the performance-oriented aspects of of music. And it was fantastic. It was really, really small. It was in a small kind of, I guess in New York, you'd call it a brownstone, but out in Los Angeles, you'd probably just call it a small building on Hollywood Boulevard, like five small floors, a lot of practice rooms, a lot of interaction. It was incredibly creative. It was a great time to be there. It eventually grew to be a much larger facility with kind of a more of an institutional flavor to it. But back then it was a very personalized, very experiential thing. And uh, it was awesome. So did it help you get started with being with great creative people within a program that were your your peers and collaborators? No, I don't I don't think it it necessarily did that. It just gave me a lot of exposure to other aspects of the music creation process that I hadn't had before. So So you spent a year then at MI and then did what? I started to work at a music store because there's no way to Unless you're really fortunate, unless you get a gig with the Chili Peppers, unless you get signed and end up being one of the rare, real successes, it's hard to make a living playing music. And so you do anything that you possibly can to stay in and around that. So for me, it was working at a music store because that kept me close to the instruments and it kept me close to the musicians. And it's something that I actually really enjoyed. So I had the opportunity to sell guitars, but also to learn about the other instruments that were out there. I learned about pro recording. I learned about keyboards and microphones. And you get really close to a lot of the details that you you don't think of when you're first starting to become a musician, whether it's the types of strings or cables that are on the market, even why one guitar case is better than another, why certain PAs are good for touring bands, why some are better for practice halls, how keyboards work, all the pieces and, and drums and basses and all these other things that I didn't really understand very well when I started there. And that was great because, you know, you're basically being paid to sit around instruments with other musicians for eight to 10 hours a day. That's not actually such a bad gig. And I I really enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed selling to musicians, too, because I felt like with every guitar or keyboard that I was selling, it was like another dream that was possibly being unlocked. You know, I think a, a lot of people get a rap that salespeople and especially salespeople in music stores are, you know, it's not such a great gig, but I actually had totally the opposite experience. I thought it was amazing. I really loved it. You were still living in Hollywood at the time? I was living in Hollywood and I was, I was working, I worked at uh, three different music stores and I loved every, every one of them actually. It was a great experience. And that, where did your journey go next? So that's what took me to the Troubadour. I, I had had a close friend that had worked at a music store with me who ended up doing all the marketing for the Troubadour. And I was friends with her and became friendly with the general manager of the Troubadour. And I spent a lot of time there. And one of my bands, we got to play there quite often. And it just became a little bit of a, an almost a home away from home. It's, it's a legendary venue. It's been around since 1956. And at the time, which was kind of the early 90s, you know, the music scene in Los Angeles was not that great. The grunge scene had really kind of taken over up in Seattle. And the Troubadour was one of those places that was really still dedicated to as authentic a music scene as could 
be had in LA. Uh, they were they were into the singer songwriter thing. They were into a more interesting and eclectic set of music than I think a lot of the other venues were. And it just became a great place to hang out with friends. And so when my friend who was running marketing there left, she asked if I wanted to take that job on. And I'd never done anything like it before, but it felt like a natural extension of the things that I'd done working at a music store, which is just being around music, but being around a different aspect of it, which was the live component and helping artists to get a leg up moving from, you know, playing in their garages to ultimately hopefully getting record deals. And it seemed like a great place to be able to do that. And so I took that, I took that job without even thinking twice. So did you think at the time that was a be all end all, or did you think that was a stepping stone? Definitely not a be all end all. I thought, I mean, originally I went there because I, I thought also it would be beneficial for my band that I okay, thought, so let's hey, stop. Cause so you were playing out all this time, right? Yeah. What were you doing musically? Uh, all kinds of stuff, doing some session work, but mostly just playing with a, a band that I had for a few years. And uh, we played all over the place and we played the Troubadour a lot. And I thought, okay, this is a great opportunity to provide myself a leg up from the inside, but also to learn as much as I can about the way the system works so that I can provide us with a view into, into how to improve ourselves. But I will tell you that being at the Troubadour, starting just in marketing, which meant doing all the advertising that we needed, but I moved within probably a month into starting to book bands. And after a few months, starting to book headliner bands and really learning the system that way. And a couple of months later, basically getting the keys and becoming the general manager. I'll tell you that it was actually, in some ways, it was amazing because I, I got to experience some of the best artistry at its most nascent levels. The bands that were going to make it that were just starting out, as well as some of the biggest bands in the world that would actually choose to play at the Troubadour. You know, you'd have Jackson Brown or David Crosby just jumping up on stage and jamming. And the opportunity to do that was fantastic. But And you were like late 20s by this time? No, I was early 20s. Early, um, early yeah, twenty general manager in your early twenties. Yeah, well, the the owner didn't care as long as you knew what you were doing. You were fairly trustworthy. You didn't drink the bar out of the alcohol, and you could figure out how to make some money for the place. He was really supportive, and I obviously ticked the box on all of those. But I'll tell you, it was also dispiriting in a way, and it was dispiriting because I also saw some of the best artists that I think I had ever seen who couldn't get record deals. And the flip side of that coin is I saw lots of bands that had years earlier been platinum selling bands that were playing for arenas that basically couldn't draw 100 people on, on a weekend. And that combination was really clarifying in a way. It was clarifying in that it didn't necessarily matter how good you were as an artist on both sides of it. And it didn't matter how big you got either, that it was very rare for a great artist to get signed. And it was also very art, very rare for an artist that had gotten signed and made it towards the top to be able to stay there. And it was a realization that the business side of being an artist is really tough. And I'm not saying you can't do it. There are plenty of bands that achieve that. There are plenty of bands who have found a career for very long periods of time that have been extremely successful for you know almost multiple generations of music fans. It's just really, really hard. And it isn't necessarily how hard you work. It's just a whole bunch of happenstance. And it, it was, that part was really dispiriting for me. And so as exciting and awesome as it was, and as great as it was for me to have an opportunity, not just to learn about the business, but I feel also to help bands on their way up 
as a stepping stone in their careers, it was equally as frustrating in some respects and clarifying for me that that's probably not what I wanted to do for a living. So what was your next adventure and what started you down the next path? Gigi, I, it's funny. I haven't, I haven't shared this probably in 20 years and I haven't been asked about it or even thought about it, honestly, in a really long period of time. For me, my career starts 20 years ago when I met my business partner and we started to work together on digital music. But there was a period leading up to that that I just don't really think about that often. And the Troubadour has a lot to do with it. When I was there, I started to realize that booking bands was extremely inefficient. I think I had at that point started to realize that I didn't want to go down the path of being a professional musician. That I loved playing music, but I loved the business side of it. I was learning more and more about what business was. And I realized that there was no data on which we were building our bookings. So, you know, the way that it worked back then, I actually don't even know how it works today, but the way that it would work back then is you'd come into the office in the morning and you would have a pile of faxes that had come in that night, the night before or that morning from booking agents around the country who were basically offering up a band. And it was basically a sheet that described what the band was, who they were, what label they were on, what kind of pre-buys you would expect from the record label. And then they would basically be like, okay, what's your bid? What's your deal? Send us over a bid. And all the bookers in town would would be like, yeah, all right, I'm going to take a shot at this or nah, I'm not really going to take a shot at this. And you'd write a dollar figure on the top and then you'd write what you were going to charge for. Like, I'm going to recoup my security costs and some of the door costs and some of the bartender costs. And then I'm going to keep all the liquor, but you're going to have 80% of all the door after I recoup all these expenses. And you'd fax that back. And then if they bit, they'd send you a contract, you'd sign the contract, and then you'd have to market it, right? You'd make your deal with the radio station. You'd try and get the record label to buy as many tickets up front as you possibly could. And, you know, you'd put ads in the local paper. And back then, it would be all kinds of things, LA Weekly and, and anywhere else you could. And you'd print up flyers and you'd hire people to go stick them in car windows. And you'd do anything that you possibly could, just hitting the ground. That was not really scientific. And the reality is that in a place like Los Angeles, what I realized was people did not go out just to see live music. They went out to see a band, a specific band. So if you bet wrong and you bought the wrong band, you could lose a lot of money. And you were betting on that band sometime in advance, too. Well in advance. Months yeah. in advance because you're trying to fill out your calendar as early as you can. And we had seven days a week to fill out four bands a day. Right. Yep. So that's 20 to 30 bands that you're trying to book every single week. And you need to do it as far in advance as you can, because that gives you the opportunity, A, to feel comfortable you booked, but B, to start early marketing on all these things. That's a pretty hard gig. And that's way before the era of social media, where at least you have some digital detritus to look through. It might be pumped up, but you at least have something to take a look at. And Polestar data, but yeah. We had Polestar. That's basically what we had. And, and you know, you try and find data, but it just really wasn't out there. And so I had this idea one day. Um, I don't know if you'd call it an epiphany. It was an idea. I thought to myself, there's got to be a way of, of aggregating all this interesting data around band touring from the smallest to the biggest bands across the market so that you could start associating one data point with another data point so you can make better bets. So for instance, if you could take radio play data and correlate that to ticket data in the past, and you also correlate it with, you know, you reference uh, what record labels are spending from a marketing standpoint, 
you could actually start getting really smart about how to book bands, when to book bands, how much to pay those bands. Or, or Monday morning quarterback what you did so that you can make a better decision next time. That's the point of having this, what I didn't know at the time was called a database. The point of having a database of all this information that was, uh, that was a combination of the experiences that you and every other venue had, along with all the kind of broad market data. So that was the initial thought. I, I realized if we had access to it and everybody contributed their data to it, they would also be able to get back out of it what they needed. So they, they could make more informed bets. And I started to meet with people who could help me to figure out how to get that built. I didn't know anything about digital. I was going to say, I, this I is like an really era of access, access databases and people yeah, having to figure out how to do entry tables and all sorts of fun stuff. It, it was a very comp- comprehensive, very complicated approach to something that at the time actually probably wouldn't have worked in hindsight, just in terms of what the... The, it wasn't the, ready yet. It wasn't ready. I don't know how we would get have gotten those data feeds. I'm not sure people would have felt comfortable sharing their data. I don't really even know because I never got that far. What I found in all the research that I was doing at the time is there was this thing that was popping up called the internet, or at the time they called it the World Wide Web. Mm-hmm. There were no real web browsers at the time. This was before Netscape had really come out. We're basically aging both of us in this in this conversation, but yes, absolutely. And there was a guy in town that was building websites. There was one person in Los Angeles that knew how to build some websites. He had built some early examples. One, the, the first that I'm aware of was called Megadeth, Arizona, the Capitol Records that actually funded him to build. It was a guy named Charles Como. And Charles Como was the guy who could build a website. Nobody even needed a website because they didn't know what it was, but it was kind of like a a replacement for a CD-ROM. CD-ROMs were pretty popular at the time with artists, and so a few record labels were sort of interested in this. And it was recommended that I talk to this guy, Charles Comons. I went to his his house in the Hollywood Hills, and he had something called a T1 connection line, which was really fast at the time. Uh, Everybody else was dialing up to AOL with 14-4 modems, and this thing was like 100 times faster. And he explained how the World Wide Web worked and how it was going to work and what some of the promises of the World Wide Web were. And so I hired him to build the Troubadour, a website, purely for the purposes of us being able to start what I thought would be a path towards having that database of all this information. And I thought if we started to put ourselves online and get ourselves comfortable with this website thing, that it would give us some of the tools, the muscles that we needed intellectually to be able to kind of make the next step. And I hired him and I convinced the owner that it was worth spending the, at the time, $5,000, which was a lot of money, I think, for us to, to build that website. And we hired him to do it. And he, over the next couple of months, was really unable to get it done. He was too busy. Again, he was the only person in Los Angeles building websites for something that seemed like it could have a lot of potential. And so a lot of people were, were hiring him. And he was unable to deliver at the time. And so I got him to give us our money back. But... My boss at the time, the guy who owned the Troubadour, was not somebody you ask for money and then don't deliver. Um, He was a really tough immigrant, an amazing guy, but he expected that when you said you were going to do something, you did it, no matter what it was. And so I took the $5,000 and I bought the Troubadour uh, Mac computer and a copy of Photoshop and a book. It was about four inches thick on how to program HTML. And I sat instead and I learned how to build 
this website from scratch. And I would work at the club until two o'clock in the morning. And then I would sit there and I would figure out how to do Photoshop and program little HTML websites until six in the morning. And then I'd sleep in the headliner dressing room on the couch until 10 in the morning. And I'd get up and I'd do it all over again. And I did that for about a month until we had a website. You know, today it would take somebody about five minutes to build it. But back then, knowing nothing, that's what it took me. And we launched that website. And even in that one month of time, the, the idea of having a website started to really explode in terms of the concept of it, the potential for it, the awareness of it. What year was this? 94, maybe 95. Mm. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I remember that while we were building it, the earliest version of Netscape had come out. Mm-hmm. And I think Yahoo was just building as a place where you could list your website. So whatever year Yahoo launched when it was uh, a Stanford University web tool, that's, that's when I was doing it. Wow. And very quickly, people in the music industry started to notice that I had built this thing and started to ask if I would be interested in building them uh, a website. And that kind of one thing led to another. And suddenly it was a local radio station, KSCA, which at the time was the kind of biggest AAA, most influential AAA radio station in America. They wanted it. And there was a record label under the capital imprint called World Domination Records. They wanted a website. And then Curb Records out of Nashville wanted a website that had all their 50 artists on there. And I realized very quickly that I was enjoying that more than I enjoyed booking all the bands. And I thought the potential was much greater and could get me closer to my original idea of kind of building out this really comprehensive database of music information. And so I left the Troubadour and set up a company to do just that. And that was actually my first foray, my real foray into what I do now and what I have been doing for the past 25 years. Which is starting great ideas and seeing if you can get them going peripheral or in the middle of music. It is. It's about building digital products with music at the heart of it. And although I'll tell you in a few minutes that it certainly expanded well beyond that, my passion has been the connection, the, the intersection of music and uh, new technology. That's really, it's like when I left the Troubadour and I started this company of my own, I knew that's what I really wanted to do. It's like when you, I had heard sometime in the past that Mojo is the intersection of what you love doing and what you're good at doing. And I felt at that time when I left that, I had found that moment of mojo that I just really hadn't ever felt before. But it was all that. It was being at the Troubadour. It was that moment of time. It was this, this sudden desire to kind of build something that had a, a, a root, a foundation in technology, but still rooted in my love of music and things related to music that kind of led me there. Well, let me add one more thing to the story you've just told, which is that you're willing to step off of curbs and cliffs, right? So that you're willing to go from the East Coast to the West Coast. You're willing to step into jobs you didn't know how to do necessarily at the Troubadour. You're willing to learn how to do databases. You're willing. A lot of people get into their space of safety in creative areas and say, well, I'm doing my thing. You kept stepping into new arenas that were still not even open doors yet. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I certainly, I don't think I've been afraid of change. I remember when I was 17 years old or something like that, um, maybe 16 years old, I had a discussion with somebody who described to me that human beings are, by their very nature, completely terrified of change in general, that we get ourselves stuck in patterns in our brains 
and that we like running those patterns, right? We're a pattern system, but that that's actually a real detriment to our long-term potential in life because oftentimes life requires a lot of flexibility and a lot of change. And it's being able to kind of grasp the comfort of change that I think can really, that, that can provide people with a lot of really interesting opportunities in life. And that really stuck with me. So I, I don't know. I don't know if how, how influential it was, but it always stuck with me. And obviously I remember it pretty well now. So yeah, I certainly, I haven't been afraid of change, but I've also been really rapidly focused on trying to find that, that intersection, that space where, where what I love doing and what I'm good at doing are in, are in balance with each other. And then a lot of creative people in technology, you know, will work alone or in patterns of people. You ended up working with a business partner. How did you guys meet? And are you guys of similar mojo status? Totally. So I've done my my early agency, I guess you'd call it, that's what they call it now, a digital agency, right? Back then it was a web development shop. And I did that for about four years. And I met my business partner because one of my customers at the time was Universal Music Group. And they had actually brought me in as the first team member of a short-lived internet record label venture called farmclub.com that Jimmy Ivey. Ah, I remember Farm Club well. Yep, yep. And we, as a part of that, the, the woman that actually set the whole thing up, a woman named Amanda Marks, who was actually kind of the, she was the business and operational leader of the entire thing. She works at Apple now. I think she works for like EDQ. She's very, very influential there. But Back then she was in the record business and she kind of started that up and she brought me in and really wanted me to meet a technologist that he had, she had heard good things about that was over at Disney. And so she kind of put us together and he ended up coming in as the second employee of farmclub.com. And we were very kind of simpatico early on. He had a, an education, he had an MFA in, in contemporary classical composition, but also computer science. And his whole thing was digital signal processing. And, and again, it was the intersection of music and technology. And we just really clicked very early on. But we, when we were at Farm Club, we actually had a very different idea. We kept talking about this idea that music listening experiences were really where things were going to go. And that back then, streaming music was actually really early on, very, very early, right? Websites had obviously taken over. You'd had the dot-com bubble, which was about to collapse at the time. So the you know the internet was becoming uh, a space for new entrants and for real business, but streaming music was not at the time. We were totally fascinated by it. We knew there could be something that was really different. And he had actually been in radio for a number of years. He paid his way through college and grad school by being a DJ and music and program director at radio stations. We both kind of felt like that was where things were going to go. And so we wrote a business plan while we were at Farm Club that was ultimately funded by Virgin, by Richard Branson, who had been another customer of mine when I had my agency. And they brought us in to run it. And your partner's name it was? Brendan, Brendan Cassidy. And Brendan and I were brought in to run Virgin Digital, which was Branson's global streaming music and music entertain, digital music entertainment platform. And so we did that together for about seven and a half years. It built up a whole bunch of stuff while we were there that became really popular. Radio Free Virgin, which was one of the first and certainly the largest at the time, internet radio service. We built up Virgin Digital itself, which was a global uh, streaming music subscription service, which we marketed to the Virgin Megastores at the time. It, it was a lot of fun. And we learned a tremendous amount and built a lot of very early, pretty advanced streaming technology and music listening experiences that we felt were, at least for the time, were kind of the best of breed. And we had the Virgin brand to be able to play with to do it, which was super helpful. 
and a brand that was willing to be played with. For a lot of folks, they bolted a digital thing onto the side of a company, and then it was an experiment space where Virgin was willing to kind of step up into bigger spaces for it. it yeah. The other thing about Virgin that's great is, you know, Branson, Branson's method for building companies is pretty unique. He is totally unterrified of trying almost anything. I think at the time he had 320 businesses around the world. I mean, most of them were kind of small. But he would try anything. So as an example, he had a motorcycle service for getting people to and from Heathrow in London because they'd be able to split lanes and cut through traffic on the freeway and get you to Heathrow in like a third of the time. And he put a lot of money into that. So you had a bunch of virgin motorcycles riding people around throughout London and out to the airport. But, you know, if you think about it, there's two things that are completely insane about it. First off is when you go to the airport, you usually have lots of luggage. How do you carry your luggage on a motorcycle? And the second thing is, is that in London, it rains all the time. Oh, yeah. So how are you going to stop people from getting wet? But he didn't care. He was undaunted. He was like, nope, this is great. It cuts time. We're going to try it and see what happens. Well, it failed pretty quickly, but it was super cool. And he's the kind of guy that's willing to take a risk on those things because his theory is, is, you know what? I'm going to learn something. Maybe I'll learn that you need to put a cart in the back for the suitcase. Maybe I'll learn that I have to provide rain gear for the people that are on the back, or maybe I'll learn that it's just a bad idea, but I'm not going to learn it's a bad idea without actually trying it. And so you get a chance to essentially apprentice your brain to that environment. Yes. Virgin is like business school for pure entrepreneurs. He'll give you money, not that much. He'll give you the brand. You can kind of play with it almost any way that you want, and he'll give you a, a shot at, at success. And if you're able to break through He'll give you more. It's like branded venture capital, but with a lot of kind of operational capabilities offered as a part of it. So, you know, finance and HR and other operational stuff that you could kind of share with some of the other companies in the Virgin Group. And and it was fantastic. And at the same time, they gave me a board seat on the Virgin Megastores, which was also great because I didn't really understand music retail from that perspective, right? I understood how to sell a guitar, but not a CD. And it was a fantastic time to be a part of it because the music business was actually cratering. And so it's it's really interesting to be part of that side of the music business. When I ran a business that was the future of the digital music space, right? And I was on the board of a very large business that was actually in decline and kind of represented all the things that were wrong with the music business at the time. And it was really an amazing opportunity to learn a lot of things. It's much better to learn, I think, sometimes what makes businesses go wrong than it is just to learn what makes businesses go right. Because then when you have emergencies, you don't really know what to do. And uh, it was amazing for us to have that opportunity. And we did that for about seven years. Well, let me take you then to when you began to invest in that. So in 2011, you started, I believe, the Incubator Elevator Labs to then invest in what hopefully was going to go right? There, there were kind of a couple of things that we did. So when we saw, we saw the declines of the megastore really happening in a pretty significant way when Branson sold the UK megastores to the management for one pound, right? So basically for a dollar. Yep. Um, and, he, and he threw $100 million in with it. And the one thing he said was, take the Virgin brand off the stores. And effectively, he was throwing in the towel. He was saying, I know it's going to fail. I don't want it to fail with a Virgin brand on it. And he was willing to spend $100 million pounds to get out from under that. Now, in, the Mer- in America, the megastores were still quite profitable. So we had moved from CDs to DVDs and games. 
We had broadened the assortment. We didn't have that many stores at the time. I can't remember how many we had, 20 or 25, but they were all like very high-end stores in like Times Square and, and in Hollywood and all these places that drew a lot of tourists in. So it was able to be profitable. But we saw the writing on the wall. We really knew what was about to happen. And so we handed the keys back to Branson and we set up a digital agency to start doing for other companies what we had learned how to do for Virgin over that seven-year period of time, primarily focusing on music. And so when we set up our own shop, we ended up building out all of the consumer platforms for CBS Radio, as an example, which at the time was the largest radio company in America. We built AOL Radio and Yahoo LaunchCast. We were hired by Cricket Wireless, which ultimately was acquired by AT&T. We were hired by them to design, develop, and operate something called Move Music, which was one of the first subscription music services in the States. We had about three and a half million paying subscribers on that platform. And so we were able to very rapidly grow our agency to a pretty significant size just by focusing on digital music experiences. Move was incredibly cutting edge at the time to have a mobile first platform for listening to music. And it was a very early business model on music on mobile phones. It was, and it was also strategically very smart for Cricket because it wasn't about necessarily building the number of customers. It was about improving their average revenue per customer and lowering the churn of their customers, which were all low-income customers that were paying by the month, basically in cash. Mm-hmm. And it was great for the customer, and it was great for Cricket. I think the total aggregate value of that was about $350 million a year to Cricket. If you looked at churn reduction and average revenue per user increases. So it was great. And for us, it was great because we got to build this really innovative music service that that consumers love. So we got to do a lot of that. And ultimately, we grew our agency by expanding outside of digital music. So digital music was the thing we were most passionate about, but we were pretty good at building digital transformation. And so we ended up building out all of National Geographic's mobile apps. We built apps for consumer financial platforms like Experian and Citibank. We built something for Ticketmaster, all the sports platforms for Madison Square Garden and the Knicks and the Rangers. Johnson & Johnson's global diabetes platform management app for consumers. So we built all these really big platforms. And as a part of that, on the side, we raised a $20 million venture fund to start investing in some of these ideas that we had. And so that when you talk about Elevator Labs, that was really our investment vehicle at the time that we got to kind of build and and play with while we were building up all of these services that paid the bills. And this was, from my recollection, also a time where there wasn't necessarily a lot of Los Angeles-based investment money. Very little at the time, right? This was pre-Google, pre-Facebook coming down here. It was pre-Snapchat, obviously, launching. So it was an interesting experience for us. And we we did not to kind of confuse the conversation, but we ended up doing a lot of work with the mayor's office under Mayor Villaraigosa, and we partnered up with uh, a whole bunch of, of entrepreneurs locally in Los Angeles to try and figure out if there was anything that we could do to bring attention to the fact that LA is actually a pretty robust center of innovation. Mm-hmm. And we, we had a lot of fun doing that. But yeah, we, we built quite a considerable number of companies and a very considerable number of digital transformation projects right here out of Los Angeles. And Brendan and I did that the entire time. And so between 2000 and I can't remember when we left Virgin, 2007 or 2008, and maybe 2017, so maybe 10, almost 10 years, we did primarily agency work and we did it all out of Los Angeles, even though most of our customers were you know, all around the globe from Abu Dhabi and Sydney, Australia, lots in New York and places in the Midwest, very, very few in Los Angeles, but we did all the work here. 
So how then did you and Brendan decide to change your bet and work on Super Hi-Fi? I guess there's really two things. So part of it is, is that we came full circle to the realization that what we love doing and what we're good at doing, we're becoming different things. Yeah, we're, we're really good at digital transformation projects for big companies, right? Everything that we learned at Virgin, all the tools and techniques that we learned with advanced technology was, you know, it wasn't easy, but we really understood it pretty fundamentally. And that's what we're good at doing. What we love doing is innovative, transformational, music-oriented projects. And we wanted to get back to doing the thing that we felt really both satisfied our psyche as well as gave us the belief that we were building something of real value over the long run. It's actually a joy and a challenge to work with the same partner for many years. Did you guys stay in alignment? And did you guys have the similar decision process to get this started? Was there any part of that journey that was bumpy or unusual? No, I mean, there's lots and lots and lots that has been bumpy but not between us as partners, only in business, because business always has bumps. You have all kinds of ups and all kinds of downs. You make interesting strategic bets, some of which work out really well, some of which end up being huge mistakes. Like any partnership, you work together to kind of figure out how you best you best work together. We, we've never made any decision, though, in isolation of one another. We can't. We're 50-50 partners. So for us, it's it's you know either we both agree or we don't do it. So no, we were in total alignment on these things. Building digital music listening experiences that are differentiated, that's what really drives us. When we were at Farm Club, the reason that we moved to Virgin was because we loved what Jimmy Iovine was doing. And the guy is obviously amazing. He's incredible. And working with a guy like that day in and day out is an incredible learning experience. But what we were doing wasn't nearly as exciting as the opportunity that we had at at Virgin to, to build these really amazing listening experiences. When we left to build our own agency, it was the stuff we did for CBS or Move that was incredible and really drove us, right? Those were the projects that we put the most passion into. And it's not that we don't have a lot of interest in really cool things like next generation diabetes management platforms in the digital domain for companies like Johnson & Johnson, but it's certainly not our most passionate projects, right? It's a functional project that has ultimately been extremely successful. Right? It's the number one diabetes platform in the world right now. But it's certainly not the kind of thing that we would get up at five in the morning and text each other an idea that we had in the middle of the night. Digital music listening experiences were. So for us, we had already tried something like what became Super Hi-Fi 10 years ago. We felt that when we were building the CBS radio platform, we felt that these giant gaps between the songs were a wasted opportunity. We couldn't understand why we couldn't overlap the songs in the same way that radio DJs do it, but do it with an algorithm. And we couldn't understand why we couldn't put, you know, content and branding in between and stitch it in in a way that sounds really good. And so we put a Skunkworks team together and started to actually fund an algorithm that could do that back then. And it didn't work. It's like for every song that we had that would sound good when it would transition, you'd have nine more that would sound terrible. And if we'd fix some of the other ones, we'd break the first one. It was like whack-a-mole. And we realized that we didn't have the technology know-how yet to be able to build it. And the computing power that would have been required at the time just to analyze the content and make these decisions in real time would have cost us fortunes because you didn't really have cloud computing back then. We would have had to buy hundreds of servers 
and allocate a huge amount of resource to something that we weren't even sure anybody would want at the time. And so we gave up on it. We put it on the shelf and we're like, all right, we moved on to things that we knew that we could accomplish. We wanted to revisit it. And part of the reason why is that, as it turns out, when we were building the the Johnson & Johnson OneTouch platform, we started to have to work with all kinds of AI tools, decision, really smart decision-making tools, because we needed to start routing all kinds of data to all kinds of recommendations that we were given to diabetes patients in real time to help them manage the progression of their disease. But we had to do it in a way that was extremely fast and also very reliable because, as it turns out, when a company like J&J is giving diabetes advice, it actually it falls under an FDA medical device set of regulations. And so the FDA actually has to approve it. And at the same time, when we were building out all of Nat Geo's platforms, we were taking tens of millions of images and articles and all these other things. We were doing analysis pl- uh, runs on them and auto-associating this stuff so we could build this nice interface. Like, So if you read an article about penguins, that it would automatically have pictures of penguins and it would automatically have videos of penguins. And it became this really multimedia experience that they didn't have any of the information on in their databases. So we had to do this all with these really powerful analysis routines that then auto-associated all this stuff with each other. And what we realized was we were getting really good at AI. We were getting good at AI, some which was proprietary and some which was using commercial platforms like Amazon's recognition platform and things like that. We're like, you know, we're getting really good at this and we're getting really good at understanding how to utilize these platforms that you could just rent by the minute, right? Like AWS is, is computing platforms. And the first thing that came to mind without even really thinking twice about it is, can we pull that off the shelf and start doing it again? Because we've never lost the passion for and, and the belief that differentiated higher quality music listening experiences would drive better versions of, of, of music listening and would drive loyalty. And what we realized was, is that as digital music services, which all sound the same, by the way, they're all commodities. As they start to, as more and more listening is happening on smart speakers with no visual interfaces at all, the only thing a digital music service has to be able to provide their experience to consumers is the sound coming out of the speaker. And they have to be able to do more than just play a song with a gap and a song and another gap. They have to start bringing experiences to life more like broadcast radio, terrestrial radio services do but they have to do it personalized and at scale the way streaming media services do. So that it's also sitting and engaging with families and individuals to know a lot more about them than your average streaming service would. In a, in a way, yes. But there's, there's no daylight between what we do today and what we thought of doing 10 or 11 years ago. The only difference between it is that we had the capacity to actually build it. The idea in our head is exactly the same. Like when we started to actually invest in it this time, we didn't have to sit there and map anything out. We did no scoping. We didn't do any product definition. We just started building it because we had described it to ourselves 10, 11 years earlier. The difference is that this time we knew what technology to use. The technology was available to us or where it wasn't available, we knew how to build it. The computing platforms were there for us and the business of streaming music had grown to be profitable. And it just, 10 years ago, if we had done it, it wouldn't have worked. This time we did it and it worked. And that's, that's really the fundamental thing. And so we decided to take all the energy that we, we had created, all the capabilities that we created around the digital music products that we had built. We took all the knowledge that we had of what worked and didn't work in investing in new platforms with our fund that we had raised. 
And we took all the knowledge of how to build digital products that really make a difference with consumers that we had built over the years of kind of creating all these global top tier products for Fortune 500 companies. And we put it all into our own platform called Super Hi-Fi and pivoted our way from being a digital agency to exclusively doing Super Hi-Fi as a platform for, for customers. What's the type of customer that you're deeply seeking right now? Our customer is purely any kind of listening experience provider, primarily music. So anybody who creates music experiences and delivers them to their listeners, they are our future customer because our technology gives them the capability to create immediate differences in how good something sounds in presenting listening experiences on a stage, on a spotlight, if you will, rather than just discrete music files playing with gaps after each other. And it gives them the ability to create total differentiation by inserting voices or other branding elements like sonic logos or artist interviews or, or even advertising and putting that in a way, de delivering it in a way that's really compelling and not just this discrete, horrible thing that kind of sounds 30% louder and is totally disconnected from the experience itself. And we are doing it today for companies like iHeart, who have put this out on all of their digital music streams, for Peloton, who uses it to do all their song-to-song -song transitions because it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that a six-second gap in between songs when you're doing a workout is terrible. We power Sonos Radio, which is their new integrated radio listening experience for if you buy a Sonos uh, speaker, you get a world-class, highly curated, fully produced sounding listening experience that's all powered by the AI of Super Hi-Fi. We power Octave Group, who has play networks and touch tunes, and they do Apple Music for Business as well. So all the retail stores and bars and restaurants that use the Octave Group experience have access to our AI-driven music transition experiences. And lots and lots of others that are being built even today. And ultimately, our goal is to transform music listening into something that isn't just discrete playlists of music, but instead sound like fully produced, perfectly woven tapestries of listening that really grab listeners and drive musical, emotional listening experiences, not just want, you know, not just song after song after song with gaps in between. Now, you've had quite a journey. As we wrap up here ourselves, what would you tell your 21, 22-year-old self now? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. I guess I would say keep going. <laughs> I, <laughs> and the fact you can't see very far, but keep going, right? I, I'll tell you, I have been very fortunate in that I've really enjoyed most of the experiences that I've had. I have really found a lot to love about all the different pieces of the things that I've gotten to do. And I think part of that is because I've been fortunate enough to have chosen some of the things that I really like. And, and I don't necessarily think that a lot of people get to do that, but also I've gotten to choose things that I'm really good at. And I think that's really critical as well. And I think oftentimes when you choose something that you're good at, even if you don't necessarily like it, you could end up liking it. You could find things to love about it. And I've really gotten to to enjoy all those and I've used all of those. There's nothing about selling a guitar that I don't use today in my business, There's, right? Because you're selling an idea to somebody that they can use to better a dream that they might have. That's just as applicable today in selling the idea of a next generation music listening experience. 
There's nothing about my experiences at the Troubadour or my early stage at my early agency or all the stuff I learned from Branson and the rest of the folks at Virgin that really fuels a lot of the decisions that I make today. So yeah, I'd say keep going. That's, that's the one thing I'd say. And any last things you'd like to say as we wrap up? Oh, wait, uh, there's one more thing. I'd say invest Please. in Bitcoin. Early on and selectively. Yeah. I remember my head of IT that I back, you know, 12 or 13 years ago was like, this is going to be the future. And I think it was trading at like 20 cents. And I was like, you're crazy, man. You're wasting your money. But he he lives on a boat in the Caribbean today mm. and and sends pictures on Instagram. So he obviously had it right. <laughs> anyway, no, that's that's the only other thing I'd say. If anyone, would you like anyone to reach out to you and what would you like them to reach out to you about and how should they get a hold of you? I'm happy for anybody to reach out to me. Most of the, the best way to reach out is really on LinkedIn. That's primarily where I live. Digitally speaking, you can find me and Super Hi-Fi on there as well. And I'd love to talk to anybody that's interested in the kinds of technology that we built, some of the detailed nuances of of it or the vision that we have for for where we think digital music is actually trending right now. Zach, thank you very much for taking us through your journey and for being on the show. Gigi, it was my pleasure. Thank you. So that's the episode. Thanks for joining us at Creative Innovators with Gigi Johnson. We welcome you to subscribe on all your favorite podcasting services and come nominate uh, people to be on the podcast. Come to your favorite social media where you can find us as well or come find us at creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and nominate people that you may not even know that you'd like to see on the show. Thanks again and we'll talk to you next time with Creative Innovators with Gigi Johnson. Thanks for listening to Creative Innovators. We are expanding our footprint. So we invite you to go to creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and find us on Substack, where we are creating a new matrix of our past shows that you can find them more easily and find them along with the career adventure guide content, where you can take your own career and use some of the tools in the setup to both be inspired by past episodes of Creative Innovators, as well as become a bigger and better creative innovator yourself. We're also launching in a couple of other platforms this year. So stay tuned and join our lists and, and find out where else you can find and combine with Creative Innovators in 2024. <music>